And the talk just keeps on coming. You can do anything. You can say anything you want to say. TalkZone.com. It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. Healthy Talk Radio with Julian Whitaker, MD, America's wellness doctor, and Deborah Ray, America's first lady of health. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. <gasps> Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Get in on the phone lines now by calling 1 800 307 3002. Now, here's Dr. Whitaker and Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, they say it's just a shot in the arm with one in three, and I've seen one in two Americans uh, have having high blood pressure. They now say that there's a blood pressure vaccine inhibits angiotensin two. It's just a shot away. Well, speaking of the measures of heart disease, we're going to be talking today about a unique science-based lifestyle approach to reversing heart disease. You can read more about it in a book. Uh, there's certainly clinical evidence of many years in clinical practice with America's wellness doctor joining us today, Julian Whitaker, MD, to talk about reversing heart disease. It's our focus on men's health right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now, the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. Our mission, to provide you those health care news and views from credible sources that you won't hear anywhere else, brings to us America's wellness doctor, uh, Julian Whitaker, MD. Dr. Whitaker, hello and welcome. Well, I guess we'll have Dr. Whitaker on the air with us in just a moment. Um, I'm right here, Deborah. Excellent. Good morning. You know what? I had a, I had my cough button pushed. <laughs> We've all done that. <laughs> We've all done that. Well, you have a, a unique uh, background, uh, first from your days uh, with, with the Pritikin approach, um, leading you to, to a major mindset shift of, of what was happening in the ER. So I'd welcome your insight. Um, uh, research has been presented now about the uh, Ornish approach versus the South Beach approach uh, versus the Atkins approach as it relates to heart disease. And what they found uh, in the Ornish and South Beach uh, diets, uh, the LDL went down about 10%, Atkins up about 7%. Uh, inflammation in the Atkins diet went up about 40% in the South Beach and Ornish approach, down by as much as 20%, mm-hmm. leading these researchers to conclude that if you're taking a look at true heart health from the standpoint of inflammation and these markers of, of, of uh, LDL cholesterol, that perhaps um, the high-fat Atkins diet does not fare as well as either the Ornish or the South Beach diet approach, Dr. Whitaker. Well, I have been using a in-between diet mixture from the Ornish and the Atkins. And the reason I do that is for, and I'll explain that, but the, the Atkins, uh, the Ornish diet, is about 75% uh, carbohydrate calories, mostly mm-hmm. starch. Right. Uh, the Atkins diet eliminates virtually all carbohydrate, uh, including fruits and vegetables to a great extent. And um, I use right in the middle using a, a bunch of fruits and vegetables, unlimited fruits and vegetables, but less breads, pastas, potatoes, and other high-starch foods. Um, 
I think that moderation tends to be the best. However, I have that is a change from what I used to do back 20 years ago when um, I was working with I worked with Pritikin almost 30 years ago, right? Where we were using the high starch diet, and um, that was even advocated by the Senate, by the McGovern Committee, yes. uh, Select Committee on Nutrition, back in 1976 that we ought to eat most of our calories from uh, grains, pastas. Uh, fruits, vegetables, starches, and eliminate a great deal of fat. And unfortunately, the the uh, food industry took this to heart. They actually increased the carbohydrate intake only by about five to six percent of the total calories in the country. And as we know, when we go to the stores, particularly ten years ago, everything was low fat. You had right. non-fat this, non-fat. You had non-fat fat, I think. You know, it just was amazing. Fat, fat right. <laughs> right. And I, I actually saw that in the store yesterday, a um, a, a non-fat half-and-half half, uh, dairy creamer. Now, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you have a non-fat half-and-half half or non-fat cream? I suspect a lot of chemicals. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, anyway... Um, the obesity just exploded in this country. And so it became obvious in the same kind of study that you've just mentioned on inflammatory products and on LDL cholesterol was done with obesity and found that the Atkins diet was substantially superior in losing weight. So our uh, the, the uh, diet regimen that I recommend would be in between the two with a lot of fruits and vegetables to where you would get the anti-inflammatory products, but you would not get the starch products, um, such as the pastas, the breads, um, that uh, I think are, are adding to the obesity. But there's no question that a a diet of only high meat and a lot of cheese and et cetera are going to increase inflammatory products. There's no question about that. Well, that rolls right into another presentation at this American Heart Association's annual meeting um, that a person's eating habit are independently associated with the risk of preclinical heart disease. They took a look at, gee, over 1,300 women uh, took a look at um, uh, that thickness in their carotid arteries, found it was the women who ate the empty calories uh, higher sugar, uh, you know, more starches, more sugar-sweetened be- uh, beverages. Uh, that empty calorie diet made a difference independently associated with the risk of uh, heart disease. Our, our diet does make a difference, doesn't it? Does, it? it makes a huge difference. And um, it's not too hard, uh, and it's not really unpleasant to eat a healthy diet. It just takes a little bit of effort. Right. It takes a little bit of understanding, and I think it takes a little bit of, um, I don't know, self-preservation. Uh, you know, everyone talks about what I don't have the discipline to do this, or you know, but when you think about it, you're you're preserving the only thing that is of real value, the, the only thing that is actually of value to you, and that's your life. Exactly. And next to your life is your health. And it might be that your health could be more valuable than your life in certain extents instances, you know, where you're so debilitated that living is almost impossible. So you do have an a should have a very strong incentive to watch what you eat. It doesn't take it's not 
doesn't take a whole lot of discipline, but what it does take is awareness. Because once you have some the awareness of eating, of of pres- preserving your health, then you have um, the ability to uh, transform your eating habits. Well, this is a very interesting. It came out of Japan, and as you and I well know, Dr. Whitaker, a lot of interesting nutritional research does come out of uh, Japan. Mm-hmm. They took a look. Um, there is a proprietary approved as a drug, fermented form of uh, pycnogenol, uh, maritime pine bark extract. And it's fermented. Yeah, it's fermented. Interesting. They put it uh, in the form of a mouthwash, mouth strips, and chewable tablets. And what they found uh, in a clinical study that was presented at their annual Paradontology Academy uh, uh, academic conference was that they they could show a significant difference in blood flow after 10 minutes of applying the mouthwash to the gums of people who had serious gum disease. And um, overall, they followed them in the first two weeks, found significant decrease in gum disease, additional decrease over a four-week period, uh, indicating that there's, there's something very medicinal about, it, about fermented pycnogenol for the health of our gums. That's fascinating. Now, you know, we have a lot of uh, very healthy um, gum products. We have a coenzyme Q10 toothpaste. Um, we have xylitol gum, which is, which is helpful for the gums. I have not heard of a pycnogenol fermented. I'm interested, I'd be interested in how the um, uh, individuals were first, you know, turned on to the fact that it would exactly. help the gums. Pycnogenol would be an antioxidant. Um, but that's a fascinating story. That was done in Japan. When, yeah. Where was that published? It was presented at the, their Paradontology Academy's anniversary academic conference that was just held in Japan. I guess it's slated for publication later on this year. And there's no product like that on the market at this time, is there? There is in Japan, and there are actually uh, there at the at the end of this research study is uh, information about uh, you know partnerships on, on manufacturing, I guess, a, a product distribution because the products are being distributed right now in Japan mm-hmm. um, as a mouthwash. Send me that information. I'd like okay. to look at it. We we could make get a hold of that and carry it at Whitaker Wellness. Oh sure, oh sure, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, this is interesting. In Canada, they've actually approved a natural supplement for the management of cholesterol. But we've got a lot to talk about today about reversing heart disease with America's wellness doctor, Julian Whitaker, MD, joining us today. We invite you to join us. Your health care questions at 1-800-307-3002. Reversing heart disease with Dr. Julian Whitaker, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Cutting-edge information on alternative medicines, nutrition, and your health. Healthy Talk Radio. Now, here's Julian Whitaker, M.D., America's wellness doctor, and Deborah Ray, America's first lady of health. And now, the Men's Health Hour with Dr. Julian Whitaker, sponsored by Longevinex, the most advanced resveratrol pill for your good health. Well, it's all too sobering for both genders, both male and female, but it continues to uh, dominate the news in terms of uh, causes of men's death in this country. So our focus today with America's wellness doctor, Julian Whitaker, MD, will be to reverse heart disease. And as always, we invite you to join us. Any of your questions, 800-307-3002. We are talking about 
big business <laughs> oh my goodness medicine dr whitaker aren't we it is a paradigm that is firmly fixed in our thinking that heart disease has to is a plumbing problem that uh the plumbing problem results when you have these plaque obstructions of the arteries that carry blood to the heart muscle and that the best solution is to go in and open up these as, as if you would open up a, a, a clogged um, uh, uh, sewage pipe from the from your bathroom with a rotor rooter and uh, it just doesn't work the the best way to handle heart disease is to shut down the inflammation and all the other problems that uh, are lifestyle induced that are causing these uh, arteries to disease themselves in the first place well, if you do that you know, if you simply live as if you had had as if you have had a heart attack, you're well along the way to preventing the first one to begin with. So that being said, lead us through because of course that we have followed and there is now a growing body of evidence to suggest perhaps we went astray by following the numbers, the cholesterol numbers, the blood pressure numbers, of course, as you know, we have medicalized <laughs> every structural aspect of heart disease only to miss the mark. You know, it's interesting this medicalization of um of normal conditions. The, it, you only medicalize, the, there's only a medicalization of a normal condition if there's a drug that physicians give for it. For instance, we talked um, on our last show how um, the um, little spit-ups that infants have when they're breastfeeding or bottle feeding, it's just entirely normal behavior. Every parent, every grandparent has seen this. Then it's medicalized. And the only reason it's medicalized is there's a drug to give for like infant GERD syndrome or something. So we medicalize cholesterol because we have all these drugs to give for cholesterol. Mm -hmm. This doesn't mean that um, elevated cholesterol is a good thing or that low cholesterol level is not a good thing. It is good to have lower cholesterol levels, but that is a lifestyle thing. Um, and when you medicalize it with a drug, and Lipitor is now the, uh, the biggest selling single drug in the world, uh, you're medicalizing it for a, a condition that's not even a disease. Elevated cholesterol does not kill people. It is presumed that these cholesterol levels um, are related to increased heart attack, and at the very high levels they are. But at the mid-levels, they aren't. So we have this huge number of uh, millions of people taking a drug for a condition that is not even uh, dangerous. They're taking it on the presumption that it's going to prevent a heart attack. And as I have done over the last 30 years, the easiest way to prevent a heart attack is to live a lifestyle which reduces that risk. And that lifestyle would be a low-fat fruit and vegetable a high-fiber diet, some modest exercise, and a whole bunch of vitamins and minerals. That's all you need to walk yourself away from the risk of cardiovascular disease. You don't need all this uh, uh, high-tech approaches to it, nor do you need all of these drugs that that, uh, we're applied with 
on the presumption that this is a good way to lower the cholesterol level. I know we've had Beatrice Gollum on this sure. on this uh, sure. radio. Right. We've had uh, the space doc, Dr. Gravelin, I think is his name. Right. Uh, those who have been pointing to the very serious consequences of drugs to lower the cholesterol level. Serious. Even more serious than the conditions they are proposed to reduce because the frequency of, of reduction of these is minuscule. You know, a 30% reduction might mean the reduction in heart attacks from 3 out of uh, 200 to 2 out of 200. So that's not really uh, making headway into this disease. But you make headway into this disease by lifestyle changes and by vitamins and minerals that the individuals can protect. But, you know, Deborah, the real area where we have a problem and where that problem has led in to, you know, this incredible use of technology and, and in-hospital services right. is the idea that these blockages that you find on an angiogram is the, is the primary source for heart attacks. When it's not, you know, if you have, a, say, a 75 to 80% blockage, uh, that's supposed to be a very high risk. Actually, most of the heart attacks we now know come not from these organized, calcified blockages, but they come from new areas in the, in the uh, coronary arteries that are fresh and where a clot begins to form or a clot rapidly forms to block off the artery. So this idea of going in and um, uh, eliminating these blockages that you find on the x-ray um, does not significantly at all reduce the risk of having cardiovascular disease or rather a heart attack. Which certainly leads us into a discussion because just this uh, this week at the American Heart Association's uh, scientific uh, conference in Orlando, I understand, was a very spirited discussion about cardiac catheterizations. We do 1.3 million a year. It's insane. <laughs> versus the new, uh, you know, 64 slice ultra fast CT uh, heart scans, which are supposed to be 90% as uh, as effective as the cardiac catheterization. But but as you have, have have educated us, Dr. Whitaker, that's a slippery slope once you're in that model that something's going to be done from an interventional standpoint that really doesn't make a difference in the outcome. Absolutely. First, if we if we backtrack from from the surgical um, end of surgery, not uh, something like sixty percent of patients now undergoing either an angioplasty or a bypass don't even have any symptoms of heart disease. They don't have chest pain. They don't have shortness of breath. It's simply found. Most of it is found on on some kind of uh, abnormality on a stress test. And they say, well, the gold standard, we have to go in and do a catheterization. I know Bernard, La- uh, uh, Bernard Lowndes Group, uh, Thomas Grayboys at, at Harvard, mm-hmm. did a study on something like uh, 300 uh Individuals who were told they needed to have the angiogram. And in evaluating them uh, using an algorithm of uh, the, their performance on the treadmill, did the blood pressure drop, did the treadmill cause, um, uh, did the treadmill cause uh, uh, a arrhythmia, how much pain do they have, using all of these algorithms, they found that 90% of them didn't need the angiogram. 
and when they were followed, uh, they had a less than 2% annualized death rate, which is lower than the death rate of the procedures that they were heading into. So we really can and should be treating these people um, that have these uh, AK, these uh, stress test problems, etc., with a lifestyle change. That's what I've been doing for 30 years. That's what Dean Ornish has been doing for 30 years, so or for 20 years. So if you treat them with a lifestyle change, all the symptoms go away anyway. And they not only lose their symptoms, but they are dramatically reduced in uh, in their risk of having a heart attack. So the idea now when this these blockages, Deborah, that everyone's so afraid of. There was a study back in 1983. Ooh, I don't want to miss a minute on this. Let's, let's pick up that 1983 All study right, when we, we return, reversing I've heart disease. I've got that disease. on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> With America's Wellness, Dr. Dr. Julian Whitaker joining us today right here on Healthy Talk Radio. The information on Healthy Talk Radio may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but it might just be good for your health. Now, here's Julian Whitaker, M.D., America's wellness doctor, and Deborah Ray, America's first lady of health. A men's health focus on reversing heart disease. We invite you to join us. Your health care questions at 1-800-307-3002. That's simply 1-800-307-3002. We're going to return to talk about... um, uh, you know how that effort to push prescriptions, uh, to uh, push procedures, uh, uh, so failed. And uh, we were going to come back to that 1983 study, Dr. Whitaker. Cough button again. That 1983 study showed that when you had, um, uh, they had about 690 patients, all right, and half of them did not have bypass, and the other half had the bypass, and each group was divided into those with a 75% or greater blockage in one artery, two arteries, or all three arteries. So they they were equally uh, distributed. And also, these individuals back in 1983 were very, very ill. Uh, They had to have had uh, chest pain for six months. About a third of them had already had a heart attack. So these were very ill people. And they will be, they were trying to determine the longevity aspects of bypass surgery. So they did the surgery on half of them. And what they found was that there was no measurable difference at all in any group with having the bypass compared to not having the bypass. But the interesting thing, which I noted instantly when this study was published, was in the non-surgical group, the overall death rate with medical therapy. This is not diet therapy. This is not lifestyle change. This is not the elements that I've been using or Dean Ornish has been using or other physicians have been using to actually reduce the risk. This is just with medical therapy. Right. The death rate in severely ill patients with these kinds of blockages was only 1.6% a year. That means that, um, that only one Half, you know, one person or two people out of 200, one out of 100 people die per year. Now, that is lower than the death rate from the surgery. The surgery in Medicare patients in 1983 had an in-hospital death rate of 11%. It was 10 times the death rate 
of the disease managed just with medications. But the other very interesting aspect of this study was that the death rate in the non-surgical group, these were the people that were treated with medicine, that the death rate in this group did not vary at all relative to whether they had one vessel blocked, two vessels blocked, or three vessels blocked. The death rate was the same. So what that would indicate is that the idea of finding a blockage and assuming that this indicates an increased risk was totally fractured. Because if you had 110 patients with one vessel blocked, and you had 110 patients with two vessels blocked, right. you would automatically assume that those with two vessel blocked or even three vessels blocked would have a, a sequential increase in death rate. The more arteries that they had blocked, the more death rate they would have or the more heart attack rate they would have. And the difference was non-existent. In other words, the, the death rate going from one to two was 1.6 to 1.4. The two-vessel group actually had a lower death rate, not significant. And then it just went to 2.1. There was no, there was a difference of less than 1% in the, in the uh, three uh, artery classifications. So that should have eliminated the surgical approach for cardiovascular disease. Scientifically, that disproved not only the fact that it didn't prolong life, but it disproved the belief that these blockages that we find by the angiogram indicate a significant risk. But it didn't. Right. And right. the reason it didn't was that the business of heart surgery had already taken established a beachhead. There were at that time there were about 183,000 procedures done per year in 1978 when the first study showed that it didn't increase um, it didn't reduce heart attack rate. There were about 70,000 procedures a year. Now they're well over a million. And this is, uh, patients are very um, easily frightened into these kinds of uh, procedures. All the doc has to say is, oh my gosh, you've got a 90% blockage. That's in the Widowmaker. You know, you could die at any minute. You could die in the, in the, in the um, parking lot. We need to operate. And all of that is just a fabricated um, uh, scenario that is designed to frighten the patient right. into right. a procedure. And it works. So it comes people, back to, you, to your opening point of, of structural, a plumbing problem versus functional. And there are so many functional therapies that you work with patients, including one and I, I, I never saw doctors get so excited that EKGs reverted to normal. Every single patient of, of whom I've spoken, with whom I've spoken about counterpulsation, say, mm-hmm. I feel better. I have energy that I haven't had in 20 or 30 years. Talk with us about counterpulsation and heart disease, Dr. Whitaker. Oh, that is a wonderful therapy. And it's got a, a fascinating story behind it, too. Uh, EECP, which is um, enhanced external counterpulsation, um, involves the putting on the body of a like a, 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 a pneumatic stocking from the waist down to the ankles, and you lie down on a bed and you're hooked up to the EKG, and every time your heart beats, there is a compression of your lower extremities. Now this 
compression causes a, a pulsation of blood to go up towards the heart. The heart is pumping blood away from the heart. So by causing the uh, compression to enhance the pulsation of the heart, it virtually opens up small arteries, it opens up arterioles, it improves circulation, and it improves the elasticity of the arteries. It was first utilized back in the 50s at Harvard as a method of transporting patients in ambulances after trauma, you know, trying to keep their heart uh, uh, pumping or keeping the blood circulation. Sure. It then did not uh, uh, succeed uh, and the technology on using this was picked up by China. Now, China likes inexpensive ways to handle health problems. They don't have all this money to spend. And what they began using this was for the treatment of cardiovascular disease. And they found that it helped patients uh, that simply had chest pain. That, And then they were using it for so many different things. They were using it for stroke rehabilitation. They were using it for kidney disease. And the reason they were getting such benefit is that this substantially improved blood flow. It's one of the therapies. We have a, probably one of the largest EECP centers in um, in America, to, for that matter. Um, and we and it's one of the therapies that I personally do on a regular basis because I know down the line by enhancing this pulsation, opening up the, of the uh, smaller arteries. Right. And, Deborah, this is the fascinating thing about EECP. It makes the arteries younger. It is a, uh, a life extension rejuvenation of the arteries because as we age, the arteries become stiff. Now, um, this it does. I'm not talking about blockages with cholesterol. I'm just talking about stiffness. Okay. Okay. And as these uh, pulsations, when we monitor the pulsations, we'll see that there's a slight bump. Uh, when, when patients first begin this therapy, uh, because the, the pulsation is being transmitted to, you know, the little finger thing that we put on to monitor, uh, the, the, uh, pulses. So there's a slight bump. And after they've had 20, 25 treatments, then the bump goes substantially higher. And the reason it goes higher is that the arterial system is now transmitting the pulse, the extra pulse. That means it has become more elastic. So we now have uh, uh, rejuvenated the arterial system by making the larger arteries much more elastic. And that is a step backward in the aging of these arteries, not having to do with cholesterol, but just the, the stiffness that the arteries have. It is a truly a dramatic therapy. And, oh, my goodness, it has no risk. No risk. I mean, we're, we're careful with people that have congestive heart failure. We don't use a lot of the, uh, high, uh, of the um, increased pressure of the pulses. But compared to the drugs, and, com- and oh, my goodness, compared to you know, all the catheters, right. catheters right. and the surgery, this is just a cakewalk in terms of patient risk. And the results are better. They're more predictable. Everyone tends to improve. And um, it's inexpensive. It's done as an outpatient. It's done in a doctor's office. 
it's just a wonderful therapy for patients with a variety of diseases, particularly cardiovascular disease, uh, diseases in the legs, angina. Um, it's a wonderful therapy for that. Now, because there's been major uh, presentations at the you know the Scientific American Heart Association conferences on counterpulsation, mm-hmm. uh, you know major centers of academia have, have uh, researched it in this country. Medicare uh, uh, certainly acknowledges it as an approvable uh, therapy for certain diagnosis. Yeah, for for certain conditions. It's right. funny that um, when uh, we no longer take Medicare because Medicare no longer pays for anything that we do anyway. But uh, when we were taking Medicare and we were uh, billing Medicare for EECP, we had to have a cardiologist state that the EECP was approved for Medicare because the patient was not a candidate for bypass surgery or angioplasty. It's insane. And the, the question would be, well, would a patient that desires this therapy over bypass and angioplasty be uh, um, uh, paid for by Medicare? And the answer to that would be no. It would have to be would a cardiac, and then it, it's insane. It's, it was 100% to protect the financial and the economic interest of those who are doing the catheterizations, the angioplasties, and the bypass. But uh, Medicare did cover it, and it has been done, shown to uh, be effective at treating this disease. But Deborah, the reason that it is not as widespread or more widespread than it is now, is money. You know, to it costs, what, $5,000 over Maybe. a month period of time yeah. Yeah. to have this done when uh, the surgeons and the cardiologists can generate $20,000 in a week. Um, it's money. It's, it's how much money they're going to be paid for the time spent. Um, this is like um, uh, health care the old-fashioned way. You know, we earn it by uh, spending a lot of time with patients at little cost to engender uh, substantial and long-lasting benefit, and the ECP fits that bill perfectly. So when we take a look at, at you, know, uh, you know all of these potential options, um, uh, you know nutrients as well. I'm reminded because you uh, uh, you know added a, a very interesting introduction to a book written by a cardiologist, Dr. Tom Levy, about mm-hmm. the, you know stopping uh, America's number one killer uh, based upon nutrient deficiency. Right, and that nutrient deficiency he he highlighted was vitamin C. It's just. Um, it was fascinating to me how much data he was able to glean from the worldwide worldwide literature on the ability of vitamin C to prevent the buildup of, athro, of atherosclerosis and cholesterol placking and turn down the inflammation and, more importantly, to maintain the connective tissue in the artery so that you don't have the diseases in the artery. So vitamin, we hear... We don't hear vitamin C talked about as much for heart disease or atherosclerosis as we do vitamin E. But in general, vitamin C is a very powerful therapy for the prevention of atherosclerosis, as he very clearly pointed out in his book. It's an excellent book. Well, let's go to the phone, say hello, and welcome to Sam. You're on the air with Dr. Whitaker, Good Sam. Good morning, Sam. How are you today? Yes, I have a question. I'm on warfarin. I have an irregular heartbeat, not serious, for mm-hmm. 10 years or more. I would like to get off of this and take this natokinase. Can you mm-hmm. tell me, give me your thoughts on that, please? How old are you? 84, in very good health. 
84 in very good health. I, you see, now, let me say this. I cannot give you medical advice over the radio. You understand okay. that? But I can say this. If uh, I was looking at an 84-year-old patient with some atrial fibrillation, is that the heart, heart problem you have? Right, yes. Okay. And that individual was in good health and did not have a lot of uh, other extenuating circumstances, I would not use Coumadin. I would use natokinase, I'd use vitamin E, I would use low doses of aspirin, and I'd use a lot, a lot of fish oil. You see, Coumadin is always a judgment call. Now, my judgment would be to use Coumadin if, some, if you'd had a mitral valve replacement. You have to have Coumadin if you have a valve replacement. Uh, if you had um, uh, high blood pressure and a prior heart attack, and had some symptoms of congestive heart failure. Coumadin would be reasonable. But in someone who's... Hold that thought. We're going to be back. Sam, stay put right here on Healthy Talk Radio. You're listening to Healthy Talk Radio. Worldwide, whenever and wherever you need us at HealthyTalkRadio.com. Now, here's Julian Whitaker, M.D., America's wellness doctor, and Deborah Ray. Our men's health focus on reversing heart disease, 800-307-3002. We were uh, saying, uh, we were speaking with uh, Sam about his question about uh, an irregular heartbeat, yeah. warfarin. Sam, welcome back. Didn't want to cut the answer short. I'm here. Yeah, and, and what the, the problem that I have with Coumadin in, in your age and with your condition being so healthy is that any kind of uh, accident or fracture, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you were to fall, break your hip, then Coumadin represents a major problem. It also has a major, major problem with perhaps bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract because it does block the um, uh, clotting mechanisms. However, the more natural ways of thinning the blood, they don't necessarily inhibit the body from, from clotting, you know, by thinning the blood with natokinase, with, with the uh, fish oil, with um, uh, low, do- low doses of aspirin, you can't use those with Coumadin. It's a judgment call, and I think you need to discuss it very carefully and very succinctly with your uh, physician and just talk about the pros and cons of both. And, uh, if you know, you can always find other docs. I mean, this is... Uh, uh, at your age and with your symptoms, I would say you would likely be 50% uh, of even the conventional docs would use different techniques to thin your blood other than Coumadin. And if you need uh, help I, putting together some of that research, Sam, I'm happy to help you. I, all right. I take, uh, I take fish oil, 6,000 milligrams a day. Hey, that's great. I mean, I can tell you're healthy. You, you, you've got it wired in, I believe. You just, uh, you know, you... Perhaps you might want to uh, shop around and get a doctor who leans more towards natural therapies. All right, Sam, if you need further help, uh, give us a ring. All the best to you. Let's say hello to Chuck. You're on the air with Dr. Whitaker, Chuck. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, doctor. I uh, called you once before I had the Guillain-Barre. Yes. And uh, I didn't mention it, Ben, because you weren't talking about it, but now you're talking about the uh, counterpulsation. When I was in the hospital, I wasn't there doing the paresis. I got a blood clot in my leg, and uh, I, I have a constant amount of um, swelling in it. The circulation is poor the, okay. after they dissipated the blood clot. So I mm-hmm. was wondering if the EECP would help me get circulation back in that leg. Well, we wouldn't do EECP with you if you had blood clots in your legs. Do you have blood clots in your legs now? No. 
Okay, yeah, then we would do it. Yeah, it would enhance circulation. It would enhance the health of both the arteries and the veins. Uh, and um, it could be safely done, let me put it that way, if you don't have clots in your legs, and that would be good. I mean, it's nothing I can't live with, but it's, I find it disconcerting, especially... Like again, what is the symptom again? Well, I have a lot of swelling always on my foot and stuff. It's just not getting the circulation through. Yeah, it would help that. All right, Chuck, our thanks to you. Our thanks to Dr. Whitaker. I'm Deborah Ray reminding you to live long, stay healthy. You can hear the Men's Health Hour each Wednesday during this time when Dr. Whitaker and Deborah Ray discuss health issues of particular importance to men. The Men's Health Hour is sponsored by Longevinex, the most advanced red wine resveratrol pill for your good health.